Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 339 of The Freelancer Show. Today on our panel, we have Eric Dietrich. Hi, everybody. And I'm Jeremy Green. And today we're going to talk a little bit about the dark side of freelancing. Uh, and by that, we mean some of the common pain points that people run into, but that, you know, often aren't kind of the, the big headlines about that people are thinking of when they, when they get into freelancing. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So, if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. Eric, you got a, an example or two that you want to point out? Sure. Um, I mean, I could probably go on <laughs> quite at length because <laughs> it has its like own unique set of pain points. But I think it's worth mentioning like at the outset that um, even like it, it's important to cover these things because I think a lot of people, um, I think in the book, oh, the E-Myth Revisited, um, he talks about that like a lot of people confuse being an entrepreneur with like having, I think he calls it like an entrepreneurial spasm where you're <laughs> at work, you decide, you know, that your boss is an idiot and you hate the company and you could go off on your own and you could do this way better than they ever could. And so I think that sort of catapults a lot of people out into the freelance and or entrepreneurial world. Um, and yeah. it's important to bear in mind that there are these pain points, but I, I want to say that like on balance, I think both of us clearly, since this is our life, uh, think that the, the benefits have offset the pain points, but there are things you might not think of, especially when you have these glamorous images of like working from home, earning higher rates, uh, controlling your own destiny, et cetera. So um, I'm trying to think of like where I would even begin, um, you know, from the existential to like, you know, the logistical, I mean, maybe I'll just cover a couple of the, <laughs> the ones like if you quit your job today and went and started to uh, apply for freelancing gigs in some capacity or another, the first one I'd go with is uh, pipeline management. So all of your career, you know, if, if you were a salaried employee or, you know, if you're just getting started um, uh, out of college or something, um, anything you had done up to this point was probably like applying for a job. And then once you've got it, you're done until you get tired of that job. Not so as a freelancer, um, you have to worry about where your next work is coming from. Even if you do the kind of thing where you sign on as a staff hog, like indefinitely, there's a reason companies staff in that fashion and it's to make you expendable. So you are by <laughs> definition, no matter what, going to have to worry about where your next work is coming from. Um, so that's probably the first thing right out of the gate. And it's... Um, you know, if you're not used to doing that, it creates a little bit of uh, a mindset shift where I think rightly or wrongly, when you're employed, you have a tendency to view that as a very stable relationship. Um, <laughs> and so it's a little bit different to always kind of have in the back of your mind, like, all right, you know, this seems to be going all right, but what am I going to do next? 
Yeah, that's definitely a, a mindset shift that is very different from being a full-time employee. Um, and I think that pipeline management leads into another thing that people often face that isn't really very apparent, uh, and that is dealing with rejection. Um, just by virtue of the fact that you kind of need to always be looking for new work and have leads working you know, at various stages of your pipeline, uh, you will inevitably deal with people saying, nope, your thing is not for me or I can't afford you or whatever it is. Um, and it's real easy to allow your ego to kind of get wrapped up in that process of winning work. And if that happens, it's then easy for rejection to feel very personal and, you know, to really kind of feel like it's, you know, on the same level as somebody broke up with you or, you know, a friend told you they didn't want to hang out with you anymore or something like that. Um, and you, you know, at least for me anyway, it was very easy to, to take those sorts of things personally. And I have had to, you know, be very purposeful and deliberate about realizing that, nope, this is, this is work stuff. This is not personal. You know, there's a hundred different reasons that this client might not have wanted to hire me right now. And, you know, it's just better for my mental health if I always assume, hey, it's not me, it's them. You know, uh, I, I know that I do work, do good work. I know that I can deliver good work. Um, and, you know, if somebody's not going to hire me, it's probably not because they think that I do crappy work. It's because things didn't work out or, you know, I want, I need to charge them more than the job is worth for them to have it done or, you know, anything. And any of those reasons are not direct reflections on me either as a person or on the work that I do. That's, um, you know, I think of like you could superficially, if you're if you're listening, compare if you know if you've been in a job search and you've been rejected um, from that, you might say like, well, you know, that's probably the same thing. But I, I'd say it's not in two ways. If if you're used to conducting job searches, um, <clears throat> you know, generally you get rejected more than you get accepted as a job search. But number one, the world kind of runs on job searches. And so there is prevailing wisdom that you just got to stick it out with the job search. So there's like a bottom, you know, sooner or later, one of those no's is going to be a yes. <laughs> this really isn't true in your mindset when you're freelancing, because maybe you're rolling out a new offering or a new line of business, or you've never done it before, but you can get a bunch of rejections and just assume that like, this is never going to work. I'm going to have to go find a job somewhere or, you know, what have you. And the other thing is that like, um, even though you'll hear a lot of stories of employers kind of, you know, blowing people off in the job search pipeline, mostly they try to get back to you and offer some sort of, uh, you know, thanks, but no thanks, or you were great, but blah, blah, blah. Um, when you're a freelancer, you move from being an employee or a prospective employee to a vendor. And I mean, this could be its whole <laughs> own other pay point. Um, but the way companies behave towards vendors is a lot less human in many cases than towards prospective employees. You know, you are there as a vendor to be there if they want you and not if they don't. So you can send out all sorts of communications and just get a complete stonewalling. 
and you're rolling out this new offering, this new line of business, and you just hear back from nobody. Nobody wants it. Like that can be, I think, discouraging in a way that maybe people haven't experienced before. Um, I guess on the flip side, until you get that big win, and then there's uh, perhaps no greater feeling in the world. Yep. Yeah, and you know, at that point where where you get the big win, you know, it's kind of similarly important to keep in mind that you know that's not necessarily a reflection of you as a person as well <laughs> and that you know if you're gonna not take rejections as personal you know you kind of need to also not take wins as personal uh, to maintain balance there yeah that's a great point i mean you kind of like with enough of it, it's it's hard out of the gate if you don't have a lot of experience um, managing a pipeline and, and pitching projects, but it becomes a numbers game on a long enough timeline. Yep. So you get to the point where you say, look, my, um, my rate of turning the cold outreach that I do into a warm sales conversation is about one in 10. And then my rate of closing um, from a warm sales conversation is like one in four. So my total close rate is one in 40, which means I just need to go about the workmanlike business of lining up 40 pieces of cold outreach. Um, so you can get past this sort of pain as you, you know, get more practiced with it and it becomes a process. And then it's easier to get, uh, I would say dispassionate where you just look at those rejections as almost like milestones on the path <laughs> to getting an acceptance. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I'll toss out a pain that I imagine a lot of um, freelancers or solo consultants might experience. It is uh, my personality is such that this hasn't historically been a pain for me. Um, but I've heard this from other people, which is that um, certain flavors of freelancing can be pretty lonely. Yeah. Meaning that you're, you know, in a lot of um, work contexts, whether you're an entrepreneur with a startup, uh, whether you're an employee, uh, however you're working, uh, you typically kind of form and have a team and a bunch of coworkers and stuff. But if you're a freelancer kind of going from gig to gig or project to project, especially if you do a lot of work out of your home, it's kind of just you and you will form professional associations, but not friends, um, at least not easily in terms of, uh, uh, you know, coworkers. So you're not going out to beers with the crew uh, on Friday night or whatever, because you're not really on site or you're not um, there for very long. Yeah. Uh, have you experienced that personally? Like I'm not, I'm just, I'm kind of introverted by nature and sort of a lone wolf worker. So um, every now and then I kind of think like, Oh, you know, I wish as we traveled, you know, if my wife were out doing something, I wish I had some friends around or whatever, but it's not really a pain for me. Uh, what's your experience been with this? Uh, yeah, I'm sort of the same. You know, I'm fairly introverted. Um, you know, I definitely have some very strong hermit tendencies. You know, the not leaving the house for the weekend is, you know, sometimes sounds like the best thing that could possibly happen. Um, but, by, you know, on the same token, I do like being around people. You know, I like having friends. Um, and so I've, you know, really kind of had to be... Uh, deliberate about scheduling stuff with friends, you know, just especially mm -hmm. as, as I've gotten older, you know, everybody gets busy. People have their work life, their family life, you know, stuff going on. Um, and if, you know, there's just way less instances of 
hey, nothing's going on tonight. You want to come over and hang out? Uh, you know, it has to really be more scheduled. Uh, and so I've got uh, currently really two groups of friends that every week we just have a standing uh, meetup after work. You know, I kind of have a group of um, programmer friends that I meet up with every Monday that, you know, we get together and talk about nerdy stuff and people get to vent about you know, their employer, a few of us uh, are freelancers. So we kind of get to vent at each other about difficulties we've had with clients. Um, and then I've got another group of friends that are, you know, people I've been hanging out with since college. Uh, and we have standing get together every Friday uh, where it's just, hey, you know, everybody come hang out, bring your kids. We're going to spend a few hours having dinner and some drinks and just hanging out and you know, even if we don't get to see each other in any way for the rest of the week, at least we've got that. Um, and so those those help a lot. Um, and then, you know, kind of I do music. Um, so my bandmate, Chris, comes over pretty much every weekend uh, when we can both swing it. Uh, so, you know, just having stuff kind of standing events on the schedule that I know are going to happen uh, help me on the that social aspect of not kind of completely turning into a hermit <laughs> yeah so i mean if, if if you're out there that's a great suggestion you know um make it more of a point to have uh, outside of a work context like social interactions um that also say maybe if you are uh particularly extroverted or you think you'd really miss the loneliness of standard office culture maybe you rely on that to be your social life there's nothing to say that you can't pitch predominantly towards companies in the area or if you're willing to travel you know go do on sites um you know you're going to have control ultimately over how high touch or low touch your engagements are so i think you can control both angles of that i would just kind of do an honest evaluation of um how and who you are and maybe factor that in a little bit to how you plan for the freelance work that you're doing. Because the one thing you don't want to do is, you know, be a complete people person and then, you know, decide to go off on your own and do something that's almost always going to be inherently lone wolf type work. Um, look at that about yourself. Or, you know, if you're stuck in that, um, you know, chart yourself a path to more human interaction, I guess. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I think uh, local meetup groups for whatever your specialty happens to be is a great way to sort of bridge your work life into some more, uh, you know, I guess personal relationships with people that do the same type of thing that you do, you know, help that good way to find your tribe around you, I guess is what I'm saying. That's, yeah, definitely. you know, that's kind of where my uh, nerd group happy hour has grown out of it. So those people that we knew each other from local programming meetups and it just kind of turned into, Hey, yeah, let's get together on Monday after work and have a beer. And then, well, yeah, let's do this every week. So let's see, what else do you have? A... I'm trying to think of generally speaking, like the less glamorous side. I'm trying to imagine like, you know, those memes of like, you know, what my parents think I do and what other people think I like. <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to imagine what a freelancer looks like to say a salaried employee or whomever. Yeah. What's like the darker side of it? I mean, I think one is kind of the collection of taxes and in the US health insurance. Um, yeah. Yeah. Where like somebody looks at the freelancer and says, oh, well, you know, you're making 
a hundred bucks an hour for the kind of work that I get paid 50 an hour for as a salaried employee. Like you're making way more money than me. Um, and you're your own boss. Uh, and I guess maybe the flip side of that is just all of the places that money goes that isn't right into your pocket. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and the fact that, you know, it's really hard to bill 40 hours a week to a client, you know, if you're working on your business in any way, uh, it's real hard to actually build 40 hours. Uh, so, you know, you've got time that you're working that you're not getting your, you know, card rate for. Yeah. So there's that, there's that time gap and then you're paying, depending on how you're structured, at least yep. I can speak for the U S you're paying self-employment tax. Like you're paying extra tax. You're paying, um, probably for your own health insurance, unless maybe your spouse is on a corporate health insurance plan. Uh, but then you're paying kind of these things like you can prepare for both of those because the self-employment tax is going to be a marginal, I want to say six and a half percent or seven and a half percent, whatever that may be. Um, you can prepare for that and you can sort of bake in, um, you, you know, I'm going to be taking care of my own health insurance. I'm going to be taking care of these things so I can sort of set what I need to make accordingly. But there are these hidden costs like uh, tax prep, for instance, um, with, uh, with one of my businesses that was structured as an S corporation, you know, you can get like surprises where, yeah, you know, I'm gonna have to pay 750 or a thousand dollars for tax prep. Oh no, it turns out this year it's 2000 cause reasons. <laughs> and you know, that's just kind of the cost of doing business. So I guess, all in, if, if, if you're in an employed context, um, there's a lot of stuff. It's kind of like bowling in a bowling alley with bumpers in the gutters. There's a lot of things going on that maybe you don't appreciate that just kind of keep you heading down in the right direction. And I guess with this finance stuff, you, you can move into that gutter a lot easier once you go off on your own. Yeah. So a, another thing that uh, I think is kind of related to the pipeline management that you brought up at the very first, um, if you're not careful about it, it's easy to get yourself overbooked or it can be easy to get yourself overbooked. Um, you know, especially if you've got somebody that, you know, is a prospect and they're, they're like, okay, yeah, you know, this looks great. Let's start next week. And this will be a three week project. Uh, and then you talk to somebody else and say, okay, I've got availability in four weeks, you know, let's start then. Uh, and then that first client, for whatever needs to delay for a couple of weeks, you know, you could find yourself either overlapping projects or two of them where people are hoping that you can start at the same time. Um, and if you don't handle that well, it's easy to end up where you're, you know, basically have to do two projects in one, <laughs> one week, you know, in the same amount of time. Uh, and that can lead to, working late at night, working on the weekend. Um, and that can lead to burnout. Uh, and sort of relatedly, even if you don't find yourself overbooked, uh, just the freedom of your environment and not having, you know, a workplace that you go into and having, you know, the clock in and clock out rituals to kind of mark the beginning and the end of your day it's real easy to let your work day kind of bleed into all of the time. You know, it's easy to have 
take a break for dinner and then, oh, well, I'll just check my email. And then next thing you know, you're, you've are you been working for two hours. Uh, it's easy to let weekends get away from you and you end up, you know, either needing to work on the weekend because you didn't work enough during the week because you knew that you had the time available to you or, you know, th- there's just a number of reasons. Time management, I guess, is what I'm saying is it, it can be, it can get down to being tough to set boundaries for yourself. Um, and that's something that I think is worth doing and being deliberate about. Yeah. You know, if I think about like, I guess the most natural comparison with, with a lot of the stuff is just to the employed world. If you're an employee, there's sort of a couple of um, natural pressures that converge to make your um, time spent at the job relatively predictable. If you're a salaried employee and you spend, say, less than 40 hours a week there, people are going to start to give you dirty looks and you're going to have problems. (laughs) If you're spending way more than that there, typically there's not a lot of personal motivation to do that. I mean, maybe you want to better yourself or you think you're getting ahead. But by and large, that relationship is one where ideally for you, you could work you know, you're 40 per week and no more because you're going to collect the same paycheck. So those two uh, forces, I guess, kind of converge you to sort of a predictable standard work week. But when you're freelancing, you could on the one hand just say, well, I think I'm okay on money and really get into a situation where you're not being at all disciplined and you're just procrastinating and not getting anything done. And there's nothing really to stop you from that other than running out of money and not being able to pay your bills. And then on the flip side, there's much less to exert natural downward pressure on the time you spend because if you're hustling, you know, those nights and weekends of reaching out to additional prospects are probably going to mean more business. So there's this ongoing knowledge that the more you do, the more money you can make, the better off you'll be in the long run. So it gets a lot harder to converge on an amount of time that makes sense. And my experience has been one of sometimes oscillating between ridiculous work schedules, you know, 80, 90 hour weeks, and then sometimes like burnout and, you know, I need a break or I completely unplug as opposed to saying like, all right, you know, I'm going to really stick to a disciplined schedule. Um, So I think, yeah, on that subject of time management, that is a really big challenge, I think, for a lot of people who are working for themselves. And frankly, that's like personally probably been my biggest pain point over the years. Yeah, I've definitely, it's been one that I've struggled with for sure. Uh, Just, you know, like I say, it's kind of easy for me to let myself get into overworking, uh, especially, you know, if I'm enjoying the projects that I'm working on and they're challenging and, you know, I'm feeling like I'm making good progress on them. You know, sometimes it's kind of hard to want to put the keyboard down at the end of the day. Uh, But I've found that it's important to force myself to do so. Yeah. I mean, I guess that, you know, that's the flip side of the independence and stuff like, cause there's a, you know, glamorous part of that too, which is like the way I work and doing what I do, I can go grocery shopping at, you know, 10 30 AM on Tuesday morning if I want. Um, so that's nice, but it does come with this sort of never ending series of like cognitive trade-offs that you're making. Like, well, at any given point I could be working. So it's almost like I have to justify to myself that I'm not which sounds strange, but, you know, even on the weekends, it's like, well, you know, I could do just no, no, shouldn't work the weekends. <laughs> That's not sustainable. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
so I guess here's another one kind of, it's sort of a, you know, a brief aside, but like I had talked a little bit about like all the extra money you might think you're going to be making the, you know, a good portion of that actually evaporates into cost. There's also the joy of, <laughs> uh, of staying on top of when and how your clients are paying you, mm. yeah. which you can't necessarily take for granted. So like, I think a pain point that sooner or later, any freelancer is going to experience is when that big client that owes you a lot of money is three months behind and paying you. And that starts to mean like, say going into your savings. Yeah. Yeah. Keeping up with getting paid is very, very important and definitely not, you know, one of the first things that you think about when you think, Oh, I think you should be a freelancer. That'll be fun. Um, you know, you're part of saying, Hey, I'm going to become a freelancer is, also saying, hey, I'm going to become a collections department. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, it's important to do it. Yeah, I remember somebody reaching out to me. Like I got a lot of questions through my dead tech blog from readers. Um, and somebody had said something that like, you know, I, no offense to the person. They were new to being a freelancer and it just made me chuckle. It was something like I sent an invoice saying due upon receipt. And that was two weeks ago and I haven't received payment. <laughs> <laughs> I forget what the exact question was, but it was, you know, you know, as if to say, like, this is just a completely unacceptable situation. And like, what would anyone do in this position? <laughs> I remember thinking, oh, my goodness, you have a lot to learn. Uh, yeah, the clients, um, you know, especially at the enterprise will basically ignore whatever payment terms you put on there and they will pay you whenever their accounts payable department decides to. Uh, so you kind of learn to live with that. I mean, there are ways to mitigate it. I think we've talked about it plenty on the show, but um, uh, that is, you know, something that you're, you know, whether, I mean, as a freelancer, or if you grow like an agency or, you know, a business um, that's B2B, like that's a problem for anyone or anything that's B2B is collecting payments from customers and clients. So that is something you will have to get used to. And it's something that's really not a lot of fun. Yeah, no, um, it, but, but, you know, I can say for sure that getting paid up front makes a lot of the headache and heartache and trouble of that kind of stuff go away. Um, you know, it, it certainly just completely eliminates the risk that you've done a lot of work and somebody's not going to pay you. Uh, yep. and that's, you know, it's, it's hard to measure or yeah, hard to measure what that's worth just on your kind of mental stress reduction and i found too that even if it's just a deposit um i think that might tend to filter out some of the worst paying clients because like if they can get it together in time to pay you 25 or 50 percent of the balance of the project up front you know at least they're proving to you that they have um an accounts payable group that isn't a complete mess <laughs> and they're able to do that um yeah. and you know if they're doing that that they're not doing anything shady or what have you. So yeah, I think that that is a definite mitigating factor. I'm trying to think of like pains, um, you know, that might be related to newbie freelancers. Um, like for instance, I've gotten a lot of questions over the course of time about, um, yeah, I, I think like related to some of the the different like brokerage sites um, that we've talked about, you know, whether it's like Upwork or TopTool or whatever those sites are, I don't personally know a lot about them, but it seems like one of the pains from people who are new to freelancing that they write to me asking questions about is 
I'm putting an awful lot of effort into this site and I'm optimizing and I'm just not really getting that much back out of it. So I think if you're either, you know, looking to moonlight and working full time or looking to make the freelance jump, one of the first pains that you might expect is that these sites aren't just magical places where you fill out a few forms and a profile and business comes to you. Um, that you do have to kind of go out in the beginning chasing business. And I think a lot of people might not quite expect that. Yeah. Just the, the part of, you know, being a freelancer is a lot of running a business in addition to using whatever skill it is that you are selling. Uh, and if you want to only use your skill and aren't at all interested in the process of running a business, you know, freelancing might not be for you. Yeah, agreed. Um, that's a good point, frankly. Like, you know, the caveat I was saying at the beginning, which is, you know, I would wholeheartedly endorse going freelance because, you know, on balance, the, the good is definitely, for me, outweighing any bad that comes along with it. But if you really just want to, you know, write code or do user experience or whatever it is you do, and, you know, all of this other stuff we're talking about is an anathema, then, yeah, you um, it might be so unpleasant. It might be so much pain that it's not worth it for you. Um, you're going to have to go chase business. And it's going to be kind of weird at first like um, because you'll initially be in the process of probably trying to look for freelance work the way that you might have as a salaried employee where, you know, hey, I'm a, I'm a programmer and I'm looking for programming work. So you're going to be looking for work while kind of trying to figure out how to position yourself and build a book of business and all that at once. And that can be sort of overwhelming. So I think you would need, at least need to be receptive to ideas like um, figuring out how to pitch, figuring out how to position yourself, managing your pipeline, uh, definitely. Yeah. Um, so kind of related to that, um, one thing that I think doesn't always – isn't real obvious is that um, you should be looking at – especially if you have clients over a long period of time – uh, you should constantly be evaluating, is this client still a good fit for me and should I keep them around? Um, and there are, you know, a lot of reasons why somebody that you worked with in the early days might not still be a good fit. Uh, you know, some of the most common are that you've either changed your offering and are now offering higher value uh, services to other clients um, or just that you are not getting paid the same with your longtime client uh, as you could with, you know, going to recruit new work um, and keeping low paying clients around, even if they're good clients, necessarily prevents you from being able to get new work at higher rates. Uh, and so it's important to kind of be keeping in mind when and if you should fire existing clients. That's a great point. And I think maybe there's a, like that triggered in my mind, this sort of subtle pain, which is uh, we've talked about a few kind of pains that you'll experience as a newbie freelancer, but maybe you get out there and you're established and you have your book of business and it's going um, reasonably well. You're earning a living, um, but you can suddenly, you know, in boiled frog sense, find yourself kind of miserable. And I think that's what happens when you're not performing this like client curation that you can get sort of locked into a pattern where um, the work isn't the best fit for you, and but you have enough of it 
and you're dependent enough on those clients that it's consuming most of your time and you're sort of in this vicious cycle of feeling burned from this ill-fitting work. So you're not out trying to find better work. Um, I'm trying to think there was another book, like I had talked about the E-Myth Revisited and there was something like the Pumpkin Entrepreneur. I'll have to Google it as an aside and maybe um, offer it as a pick, but like where the book is basically focused on being in a constant state of like, applying the 80-20 rule to your clients and then making a plan to identify the best 20% and then find more of those while making yourself a little uncomfortable by firing, you know, up to the bottom 80% of them. (laughs) And while that's pretty aggressive, I think he's targeting more like agencies and smaller businesses, but it's worth bearing in mind that you can get into this actually kind of unpleasant equilibrium of success where uh, the work isn't great. There's maybe too much of it. It's burned you a little bit. But if you're only doing it with like three repeating or simultaneous clients, they might be taking too much of your time for you to really feel like you're going to find anything else and you get kind of stuck. I think that's something that happens to a lot of freelancers and business owners at times. Yeah. I am trying to think of like, you know, a mix of things that like people have reported to me and that I have personally felt. Um Here's like a personal one of mine, which is I'm actually a fairly like risk averse person. And Mm -hmm. one of the hardest things over the years for me to get used to has been the potential for, I guess, ebbs and flows in business and that it's hard to project um, your income and it's hard to project your business expenses And so like I came from a lot of years of salaried employment and budgeting, personal budgeting is really easy. You know, you take home X thousands of dollars a month and then (laughs) basically budgeting just means like uh, you pick some number below that so that you have savings and then you don't spend more than that number and that's it. But when you freelance, projecting out your future income can be pretty difficult. And then even if you do a pretty good job, say you've got a couple years in and you just use your, you know, um, past like aggregate average over the last two years and say, well, on average, I make this amount per month. Well, you might have a big spike and a big valley. Um, so now you get hit with the unexpected, even when you are projecting out that one big client that you have tells you thanks, but no thanks. And suddenly your personal finances, um, if you are using your income from your, from the freelancing to project those, get thrown all out of whack. That was one of the hardest things for me to adjust to. Yeah, that that can certainly be challenging. Um, one thing that has worked well for me to address that is, um, well, I mean, so you should probably do this regardless. You know, you should have a a business checking account or bank account uh, that is separate from your personal account. Um, but you know, I structured things such that over a period of time, I built up enough savings in my business account that I just keep in there about six months of total expenses. And that includes, you know, all the outside expenses that I have to pay as well as paying myself a salary. And then, you know, every month I do just like, you know, like clockwork, just like it's normal payroll, uh, pay myself out of the company into my personal account uh, that then, you know, that, that personal account is on a really fairly steady, you know, stream at this point because I've just got money stashed away in the business that I know I can pay myself for up to six months if all of my work dried up tomorrow. Uh, And so that makes the 
personal stuff more stable and more predictable and sort of localizes the unpredictability only in the business account itself. Uh, and then, like I said, I've built up some reserves such that I'm not just always, you know, checking the checking the uh, checking balance every morning uh, <laughs> to make sure that I'm going to be able to eat. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, that that was a big help for me too. Um, building up personal savings. Um, I'm trying to think I've had different structures with the business. Um, for a lot of years, I just had like I had separate um, accounts for the business, but I would basically pull out everything that was profit, which was almost everything when I was a consultant, and then just manage that on the personal finance side where I did have runway. Um, one thing that's been nice for me is our business hit subscribe has now grown to the part where we have employees and um, run regular payrolls, which includes a paycheck. So that business has kind of grown large enough to be stable in a way that I can count on. But you know, for a long time, that was interesting so for you out there listening if you have a way you know to really you know i don't know if your business is maybe bringing you ten thousand dollars a month um i'm saying this in retrospect that i might say look i'm gonna pay myself only like three thousand a month until we get like a lot of money pulled into the business and then i'll gradually ratchet up that salary i'm taking out but yeah i want to get enough money in there that like whatever salary and however you take it out as a draw or whatever. Um, but whatever I'm pulling out of the business, I'm going to keep it small until I can really justify building it up by having savings and steady income. That would be probably a way I would do it differently. Yeah. And, you know, having that savings uh, sort of to me has, has had compounding effects where it helps my stress level in general and also helps me maintain perspective that it's okay to turn down bad work uh, and, you know, leaves me less with the feeling that, oh God, I've got to get every, every lead that ever comes across my plate. You know, I have to land it. Um, yeah. It, it helps me be able to focus on the higher value work and kind of, you know, turn away stuff that's not going to be a good fit or that isn't going to bring the rates that I want to charge. You know, philosophically, I think a lot of the pain points that I hear about in um, having a business, a practice, kind of comes from the need to uh, take business, a feeling of a bit of desperation, um, versus a lot of pain points get alleviated in general from being able to be pretty picky about your business. So, I mean, from everything obviously to pipeline management if you have more business than you can handle that's not really a problem for you um but like to just day-to-day -day quality of your work if you have more business than you can handle you're presumably turning away the worst fits the bad paying clients etc um just kind of across the board putting yourself in a position to be picky is a huge help so they're you know, building that runway before you go off on your own, um, you know, being frugal about your expenses, uh, getting established. I, I think there are a lot of things you can do to stack the deck in your favor that way. Well, what do you think? Any other dark sides of freelancing that you can think of? I'm kind of trying to rack my brain for things that are a little like more existential and less tactical. Um, I mean, just sort of as a large category, you know, there are such things as bad clients and you want to be looking out for those, you know, you want to try to identify red flags that are going to 
identify these people. Um, you know, for me, one of the big ones is uh, they are overly concerned about you know a rate of you know what what are we going to pay you per week and can't ever get to understanding what's the value of this work for your project. Mm. Um, and, you know, that often just sort of manifests itself as a preoccupation with getting the lowest rate and trying to bargain me down and trying to negotiate and, you know, structure the deal weird so that they get the rate that they're looking for or whatever. Um, and I, I've sort of found that th that behavior seems to often come along with other bad behaviors that I don't want to be dealing with, like micromanagement, and, you know, sort of uh, what I call the fire of the day project management uh, approach, uh, <laughs> where, you know, the priorities are constantly shifting just based on whatever somebody has decided they want to care about that day. Um and so, you know, I, I think just the fact that there are such things as bad clients isn't always immediately obvious when you're first getting started. Uh, agreed. Uh, like for me, the heuristic one that I've learned with considerable battle scars over the years, uh, if you have any ability to be discerning about your clients at all, this is the heuristic I would offer you. If you're, if the bottom range of what you're willing to do the work for from a price perspective is at the top of the client's range or slightly apart, that is a recipe for disaster. So just to restate that, if you're going to do a piece of work and you think I would do this work anywhere from five to $10,000 and the client comes to you and says, oh, we really had a budget in mind of 4,000, run away from that seriously fast <laughs> because What's happening there, and think about it if you engage, like let's say the logical thing to do there would be for you both to say like, well, okay, let's do it for 4,500. Now you're starting on a project where subconsciously you're thinking, this isn't worth my time. It's below the minimum I wanted to do this for. Meanwhile, the client is thinking, this is more than the upper end of my budget. This person better do a great job. You already resent each other basically from day one. And it's because you're really misaligned on the value of the work that you're doing. So um, I've learned this over and over again. If you start out apart that way, yikes, um, it, that rarely ends well. So what I would advise doing, you know, if you're able to do this, I mean, if you need the work, you need the work, but if you can do this at all is just say, look, you know, it looks like this is probably not a fit. You know, you might go here or there to find people more price range. Let me know if things change on your end. Um, because, yeah, one of the biggest pain points I've experienced is on the other side of that where you do take that work. And then it's just, you know, that's a demanding client that thinks you that always thinks you need to be doing more. And you're wanting to throw up your hands in frustration and say, like, look, this is borderline charity from my perspective. So <laughs> yeah, I would. Oh, please stay away from that. Do as I uh, say, not as I did. Yeah. Uh, anything else? Nothing else coming immediately to mind. I think like philosophically, I'd like to close by restating that, you, you know, all of these are good things to surface for you to bear in mind. But like, honestly, like having your own business is pretty great. Um, yeah. I would say take these pain points and understand that they're going to happen. Um, manage your expectations and have a plan with them, but don't let them uh, put you off or discourage you in any way because, um, not only can you get past them, but there's, you know, a whole community of people with Jeremy and I as 
evidence among others that deal with these things and can help you through them. Uh, so in the end, it, it's a pretty good deal. And uh, I think it's a great deal for a lot of people to freelance. Yep. Wholeheartedly agree. Well, let's move on to picks. Uh, what do you got for us this week, Eric? Uh, well, I'm going to go with the two books that I mentioned during the course of the discussion. One is called The E-Myth Revisited, and it is about um, system building and systemizing a business. And it's a pretty interesting listen, um, especially kind of at the beginning talking about this idea that simply wanting to not be employed doesn't make you an entrepreneur. The author, uh, whose name escapes me, but he defines these, I think, three personas. It's like the entrepreneur, the manager, and I forget the other one. But he talks about like kind of the interplay and how you have to operate as all of these as a business owner or freelancer and how to kind of manage this. Uh, I think the technician is the other one. And um, in this line of work, you, you know, in the technical, uh, we tend to be technicians. We have these entrepreneurial spasms, but then we just want to go off on our own and not have to deal with the manager type. Uh, people bossing us around, but we really just want to be the technician. So the first half of the book too is like super valuable in helping you set expectations and saying, look, you can't go off on your own and just be a technician. You have to do these other things. So I would give that a uh, read or a listen on audiobook. And then the other one, I'm pretty sure was called the pumpkin entrepreneur. I'll get it right in the, um, in the actual pick links. Uh, but it, this was the one that was talking all about how to identify and call out bad clients while finding more better clients. And I think that for a lot of people with a freelancing practice, it could be very revelatory where you might realize that you actually have um, more bad clients than you think, and you need them less than you think you do. Uh, and that's it for me. Cool. Uh, I am going to pick uh, the Independent Consulting Manual, which is a book that I was a contributor to uh, that I think has a lot of really good advice for people that are kind of new to freelancing, uh, covers a lot of topics, uh, kind of help you figure out how to structure your business, how to structure your personal schedule, um, all that kind of stuff. Uh, and then also uh, an email course that I offer uh, that you can find at increaseyourconsultingfees.com. Uh, and this is a short course about doing things to make the value that you provide to your clients more obvious so that they can see it and realize how valuable that you are to them. Um, and I think that's it. So uh, thanks, everybody, for joining us on this, the 339th episode of The Freelancer Show, and we will see you next time. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.